It's sad that friends, there are friends out there, we all have them, or people you know, who want to see you fail. And unfortunately, I think that is a reason a lot of people do not take those leaps of faith. Mm -hmm. They, it, it puts them off even more from seizing the day. I, I'm being serious, more so than a fear of rejection. Ladies and gentlemen, welcome back to another episode of the 30-something podcast. So this time I'm sitting down with Amar Singh. Amar and I go way back to when I went to summer school in America back in 2011, which was a long time ago now. Amar in that time, I guess, I've started a podcast and Amar has opened an art gallery and even been inducted into the Forbes 30 Under 30. So Amar's whole last few years has been in the art world. So something a wee bit different today. And even if you're not interested in art, I really recommend listening to the full thing because there's quite a few lessons sprinkled throughout. Amar has gone through, throughout this podcast you'll hear it in his voice and his stories, he's gone through a really tough time with a lot of unnecessary scrutiny, there's been betrayals and businesses that he's started, things in the art world that have gone against him and yet he still pushes forward, strives for more and is looking out for something bigger than himself. His passion and his kind of like emotions come out quite strongly, especially when he talks about all the work he's done for LGBTQ rights in India. If you like this episode, please subscribe, then you'll get updates whenever a new episode comes in. And the goal is every Monday, which has been quite consistent so far. Go follow us on the Instagram page, it's at 30-something interviews, it's where all the video content is. So if you wonder what the guests look like, if you want the best sound bites, in my opinion, from the episodes, you can find them there. And if you really, really like it, please feel free to leave a review. I read them all, it's good to get feedback. Share it on your Instagram, share it on your Instagram stories, let people know you're listening. It's the only way people are finding out about this and it's just the more people I get, the more I can engage with, the more feedback I can get, the better I can make everything. Next week there will be a pause because I'm actually turning 30 myself. So this weekend I'll be busy doing all sorts of birthday things I'm thinking I may do a small, shorter episode, so we'll see if that happens. But if not, I will see you the following Monday for the next interview. And with that, let's jump right on in. Mar, so I guess the way I just like to start these is, I'll have done a wee introduction, but if you can tell the people listening a bit about yourself, kind of where everything started. So I'm Amar Singh and I I'm an art dealer, soon to open a apartment hotel in central London, a new venture. I was born in London, in Paddington, and grew up uh, in London and Windsor. And I went to school in that area before going to um, America for university. So going back to the childhood thing, can you tell us a bit more about your schooling? Did this experience with art start really early? Was it something you were always interested in or was there other passions you had? It started super early because my parents would always take me to art galleries the whole time we would, we would travel you know I was, I was fortunate to travel a lot with my parents and it was always about walking everywhere and going to museums and cultural sites which i think is very important yeah. i remember once we were in gorbio in france and we were in this church and i was about nine years old and there were these paintings in the church by this indian artist which was such a strange thing. And the people in the church said we were the first Indians to have come to the exhibition and that the artist lives part of the year in, this, in the town and is nearby. He, they gave us the address and, and we, we walked, uh, as we always did everywhere, to the artist's residence, knocked on the door. He welcomed us with open arms and started making chapatis and Indian food for us, seriously. And what's crazy is that artist was um, somebody called Raza. And back then, when I met him as a, as a nine-year-old, those paintings were probably $10,000, $20,000, which is a lot of money. Today, some of them are going for $2 million. <laughs> So it's, it's quite amazing um, that was, from a young age I was exposed to that. What was his art doing in the church in the first place? It was an exhibition. They decided, because his, uh, Raza, who unfortunately died a few years ago, 
he, he was a very meditative and spiritual painter. Um, it wasn't about any religion, but it was about spirituality. So I think there's obviously a link there with the spirituality of the church. So then you went to school, you went to university. Yes. Did you kind of direct that round the art life or what path did you take? Well, at school, um, both my school I spent the longest amount of time in was in Windsor, which from, was from four to 13. And there was art class and I always loved it. And I just also distinctly remember from a very young age being drawn to Roy Lichtenstein. And we were once all, um, everyone in my class was assigned to do some paintings and everyone kind of did a classical field. And I had done this lady by Roy Lichtenstein, which is pop art, bright colors. And we had a little school exhibition. I must've been seven and it was exhibited there. But what's crazy is flash forward to only a few years ago, I ended up loaning an original Roy Lichtenstein painting to Harvard Art Museum. How did you come across it? I found it in an under the radar um, location in Cleveland, Ohio. And that is the, the job of an art dealer to, to play detective sometimes. Yeah. So started with art class and then when you went to university, what was the direction there? At university, when I was in Massachusetts, the museums are unrivaled. It's, it's what's, what was quite surprising to me. Harvard University is one of those universities where it's museum level art everywhere. And a lot of the alumni have ended up donating art to the institution. So at Harvard Art Museum, there are Picassos, Rothkos, Monets. It's, it's really crazy because there are other leading museums all over the world. They don't have a collection like that. Yeah. And it was quite inspiring to be in that kind of community. Is that what drew you to Harvard in the first place when you started going? Or? Absolutely. I just, I love the, there's always a joke about American, uh, America and England um, about, you know, culture because uh, America is much younger than, than the United Kingdom. But Harvard has so much culture and it's probably, you know, New England, Boston, Massachusetts, probably the epicenter of all American culture because it's where it's the origins, it's the independence for them. And I really wanted to spend some time there and immerse myself in that, that part of the country. So what were you studying when you went over there? Was it art-based subjects? Or? Well, I focused on, on humanities. So there was, uh, I studied literature, but I also did a minor in art history, which was quite revelatory. I, I, I was taught about Frida Kahlo and Diego Rivera. We did on-site surveys of the actual museums and their teaching body was able to use their collection which again was quite mesmerizing being taught in front of Monet's and Picasso's. After everything finished up at Harvard, were you like, I love the art world, this is what I want to get into, and then you started up a website to sell art, or you had a community around <laughs> you already? Well, I am an art dealer, but I very much view that as being an entrepreneur. And I started buying and selling prints at Harvard, but I'm talking about you know, $200 yeah. prints. How old um, you? Oh, I, I even was doing this on the side when we met, um, which is even longer than, than eight years. So maybe I've been doing it longer than eight years, but I mean, it, it, it was, you know, buying them and not really doing it during the summer because we met in the summertime. That was just really, you know, letting yourself go. <laughs> but coming back and having these prints and even sometimes selling them to um, friends or neighbors, a very just casual way to begin with. Well, like word of mouth, or word, of, word of mouth, word of mouth, and the fact that you know I wanted, I really loved art, but this was it was small, um, and the margins were small. But what happened is I actually started a couple of businesses before going fully in, fully into art, which were in uh, tech, and they didn't work out. So this is this is the rea this is the reality of entrepreneurs. So what were they? So one of them was a a Universe, university version of LinkedIn. And subsequently, there have been companies who have done that and raised millions of dollars. But raising money doesn't always mean you have a good business. With that being said, I still think it's a good concept. So we, we would have young individuals record themselves in this virtual CV. And so employers, especially ones um, looking for interns, would have a real 360 view of that individual. But I'll be honest with you, I'm not a tech guy. I, I, I barely can work a mobile phone. Um, and that's the truth. 
um, I, I need to get better at this, at this especially as, as, as we live in this ever-changing world of technology. But somebody who is not a tech guy founding tech companies is not a good idea mm. um, unless you partner with people who are better than you and know more. Did you? Than you. No, I did right. not. No, I did not. I did not partner with with people who knew more uh, about tech, and I was trying to I was trying to oversee it um, m myself and manage everything, and it was just it was chaos. But there's something else to mention. I very much did that, and I, I have to admit this. Like so many people, as a knee jerk reaction to the Silicon Valley boom sure. and and Harvard's environment. Yeah, yeah. I was n I'm never I was never really passionate about those two businesses. I think they're important and they serve a need, but going into those offices every day, I wasn't particularly content. My love has always been the arts and creativity and, and people. Well, it's funny because when you hear people saying, you know, follow your passion, this and that, if you're just doing it for the money or because it's the hot thing, like you're going to drop it. When times get hard, absolutely. you're just not going to be interested. Absolutely. Absolutely. And I, I really didn't, I didn't know what was going on. I, I, I didn't know what the difference between uh, Python coding in Java was. I still actually don't. <laughs> and, so what and point so, did the business get up to? Well, we grew, we, we launched in, in, in beta, but one of those businesses was actually stolen from me. Uh, I, you know, I don't want to go into to too much detail, but I will share. You know, one of those businesses was actually stolen. By a partner? Or? By a partner and an employee who thought they would scale it bigger. And no, that business all ended up, you know, I left as a result of that. And it was actually a very demoralizing time for me. And that business ended up liquidating. Um, so what was the takeaway? I imagine after that kind of betrayal, it's quite hard to build up your trust again. Yes, but you have to. And um, it, it was difficult. I was not in a um, happy place. Um, and it was quite a low point when that was stolen. Because you think, you know, this is, a, this is a disaster. I've really given it my all. I am not an entrepreneur. You 100% think that, yeah. um, which I definitely did. <laughs> which business was that? Was that, that um, it, was, it was one of the tech companies, right. yeah. And so these guys took it and yes. well, not unfortunately, because maybe for the best, right. they fell through when they Absolutely, over. absolutely. So you went through this dark period. How did you get out of it? Believe it or not, I thought I was going to have to go down a path which I didn't, I, I didn't want for myself, which was, you know, maybe finance or something, or loads of thoughts went through my mind. Sure, yeah. And there's nothing wrong with those uh, professions. A lot of people in finance, you know, make a lot of money, they give a lot of money away, but it's just not for me. And I always was doing this buying and selling. And at this it point... It was like the side hustle. Yeah, yeah, side hustle, absolutely side hustle. And so I believe that networking is very important. I recently was sent an interview by Jacqueline Kennedy, who is the owner of Ann Summers. Right. And what was interesting is she was asked, what is the one valuable lesson you would give any entrepreneur? And her response is, network to your heart's content. Network every single day. Every time you go out and step into a room, you have the opportunity to change your life. I couldn't have said it better myself. And I have actually been doing that since I was, I think, 10. I mean, I networked with that artist in India I met when I was nine and kept in touch with him. Yeah. Um, and he ended up being one of the most celebrated artists in Indian history. So what happened is I needed to scale my buying and selling. Mm -hmm. And a lot of people make assumptions about me and don't know the, the, the facts because they just don't ask it. And I don't have any secrets. I reached out um, to somebody I, I knew who was not my family. He is a very successful businessman and he started investing in my business. I was able to buy and sell paintings in the millions and it completely transformed my business and my profit and my margins and, and my life because it, it was on such a scale where if you buy a painting for a million and you're selling it for one and a half million and you're in it for 50%, that's a game changer. Yeah. And, you know, we worked together for five years. So um, when did you get this guy to buy into everything? So believe it or not, when I was 16, I was at a Charterhouse um, secondary school and I would always read Forbes magazine. And one year I saw that these Indian billionaires 
who had come from nothing, had started a, a gaming business. And no word of a lie, I started calling these guys every week for six months until they both eventually took my call. Amazing. And, you know, they're these billionaires taking a 16-year-old's call, but they didn't know anything about me. And so they had started a gaming and gambling company. So I was calling them because I had, I had thought of a business to pitch to them. And that business, which they explained wasn't the best idea at the time, although I still think it has legs, was charitable gambling. Right. So I registered a name in a business called The Jackpot's Yours, the JPY. And the, this was when I was 16. And the JPY was all about charitable gambling. All the proceeds would go to charity. And so I wanted to partner with a gaming and gambling company. So I'm, I begin pitching this and they kind of interrupt me and say, you know, we're, we're having a serious conversation now. They're like, okay, you've gone full on pitch mode over the phone. They're like, how old are you? What's your background? I said, oh, well, I'm at um, high school. I'm 16. They, 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 they were in disbelief. They said, you're 16. You're kidding. And I said, no, I'm 16 years old. And I, I, I really admire what you've done. And I want to be a successful businessman. And I want to give back to people. I want it all, but I also want to give it all away. That's kind of a personal motto of mine. And they, they believe it or not, they invited me um, in to, I think, just kind of see it to believe it. Yeah. And I'm this kid. And I, I kept in touch with them. And so one of them ended up being my investor in the art world for five years. It was five years where it was buying and selling high value, high value art. And it was a very profitable business because it was very little overhead. I had a very high budget. Um, you know, essentially, you talk about raising. Eight figures was invested in that operation, which is a large amount of money. Yeah, and yeah. every single transaction was profitable. Every single one. Even when things looked bad, I somehow, to my own disbelief, turned it around. And by that... We'll give an example. <laughs> right. So... Um, this was a lesson which, you know, I, I, I'll go into. I love lessons in this podcast. <laughs> there was a Roy Lichtenstein print for $50,000. It's a lot of money for a print, but to put it into context, original paintings by Roy Lichtenstein have sold at auction for over $100 million. So a print signed by Roy Lichtenstein, they can also, believe it or not, be hundreds of thousands, a million dollars. So I find this deal in Paris, this print for $50,000. It's probably worth hundred, $150,000, phenomenal margins. And it's from a reputable dealer. I buy it. And my friend in Paris, he, I, I trust him, picked up the print and brought the print to me in London. Now, my friend is an amazing guy, but he's not in the art world. Yeah. I opened up the print. The minute I saw it, it was, I knew it was fake. I did wonder why you were saying reputable dealer right. with a lot of cynicism. Right. Yeah. And this, is, this was a problem. And what ensued, and this is where now we get into the juicy details of the, the crazy art world, was a lot of conversations. Conversations where the French dealer even said, I don't care who you are. I don't care about your lawyers. I spit on you. I spit on your business partner. I spit on your lawyers. This You're, is the guy who ripped you off. Absolutely. Right. You're never getting your money back. And, and this, that was a real conversation I had. And I'm thinking, oh, great. This is, not, um, this is not going well. What happened is I got um, three reputable and the biggest auction houses in the United Kingdom at my, my contacts there to write letters asserting that this indeed is a fake and backing me up. Mm -hmm. So now this dealer has three letters from the biggest auction houses actually in the world, not just England, the three biggest auction houses in the world. And I've said to him, look, I'm just going to go public. I said, fine, I won't, even I won't even sue you. I said, I'll just go public. I've got three letters now. It is 100% fake. It's been now through all the tests um, at the biggest auction houses in the world. It's a fake. I, I think the honorable thing to do is refund me. And you're, you're as good as your reputation, especially Absolutely. in the art world. So he refunded me. But I was looking at a $50,000 loss there. That's a problem. What happened to the fake? So he refunded me and he took the work back and I don't know what happened to that. I hope he didn't sell it again. Yeah, that's what I'm wondering. I hope he did sell it again. I knew either he'd sell on or you've kept it and it's framed somewhere as a memory. <laughs> okay, yeah. No, they, he wanted that work back, so, which is interesting. I really would love to know where that is. <laughs> right. Yeah, right. it's going to over the years exactly. trace it back. Exactly. 
Okay, interesting. So that was talking about kind of like the rough lessons you learned. Absolutely. Because you'd partnered up with your business guys. So back to the buying and selling, which evolved into your gallery. Or start with the website first, actually. So I started a website, uh, which was a very basic website. It still is quite basic and primitive. Um, just showcasing what I what I do. It's uh, amarsengallery.com. And it has artists that I've represented. It has artists um, whose works I've bought and sold. So it's a bit of a background on the works I specialize in. And for the record, I specialize in historically overlooked and important female artists. Um, that is my area of speciality. And I always thought that was really interesting. How come you went down that route? A lot of people um, watching this won't know, but I come from a background of women's rights and LGBT rights. And so I've always been involved in, in, in human rights as well as art. Yeah, because you're quite big in the front of pushing that in India, right? Yes, in India. Uh, w focusing on women's rights and LGBT rights in India. Obviously, you're of Indian descent. Absolutely. How come you decided to start helping focusing on that area? A lot of it is obviously inspired from my family. Um, um, have to give them all the credit. My mother is a very strong, you know, independent, um, self-made businesswoman. And on my father's side, my grandmother actually was a champion of women's rights in you know, pre-independence. She uh, spoke alongside Mahatma Gandhi, um, India's first Prime Minister Nehru. She was one of the leading educators in India. My, my, my ancestor, Raj Kumari Amrit Kaur, was actually first health minister of India. She was a woman. She set up the first women's education fund. She, was a, she is actually considered the, arguably the leading women's rights activist of India. So I do come from a long line of women's rights activists. In India, unfortunately, there are problems in every country. And sometimes problems in India are exaggerated, but, but they're also not. And what needs to be digested is the fact that India is a 1.1 plus billion, a billion population. So where you have crime in England, it's of course going to be exacerbated in India, Absolutely. unfortunately. And there is a women's rights problem and an LGBT problem in India. Homosexuality and so homosexual relations was only legalized in September 2018. And there are still major problems in the LGBT um, equality area in India. But the biggest problem I see is with women's rights in India. India is an amazing country and I'm so proud um, to be Indian as well as um, uh, British. But India has not grown at the pace of other countries. It really hasn't. It hasn't grown at the pace of, in, um, of China. It, 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 Philippines now, which I love, um, I love all these countries, but the Philippines by by default, doesn't have anywhere near the resources of India. It doesn't have the population, doesn't have the resources. It's a remarkable country. Philippines is now growing at a, at a much faster pace. They're getting tech investment everywhere. My reasoning for that is India doesn't champion women. It's half the population. And if India championed women, we would have arguably maybe the biggest economy in the world, if not one of the biggest. And that's a major problem. So it's both a human rights issue, but it's also a future life issue where how can India grow if half the population are not championed? That's the reality. So as you're focusing on women's rights over there, I'm guessing part of it is also trying to educate people in education the power, big... how if they champion women. Absolutely. How's that going? It is, it is, it's going. Um, and w what I do is I raise and donate money and, and, and really it's now mainly funded through in initiatives I do. And we do donate to education groups, we donate to human rights groups, but I'll be honest, you know, this is about being candid. One of the issues we, we faced in India was um, the, there's a lot of corruption and the giving often doesn't go to where it needs to be. Mm -hmm. Are you able to trace what you give? Um, you now, by doing it all myself really, yeah. things are much more under control. But when money has been raised or donated from England or, or other America, money goes missing. Money has gone into thin air, my money has gone into thin air, and that's not good because when you're talking about money needs to go to organizations which help to educate girls or help against sex trafficking of young girls, well, what, you know, this money is being stolen. Why, <laughs> you know, and that unfortunately does happen in India. Puts, I think, um, I know reputations of a lot of charities. I insulated and I, I, I've taken control. I don't want to have an argument with a charity in India over their overhead. That's another issue globally. Overhead of charities. Ludicrous. 
Um, what, so, you mean if they're taking like first class business flights? First class things? business flights, people are being paid million dollar salaries. Yeah. I see it all, I've, you know, I've been, do, I've been doing charity and human rights for a long time. And let me just say this, I've looked at a lot of books of charities globally, but of, of, obviously in India, massive problems, massive problems. So what I prefer to do is I can cut out all the bureaucracy and if I can just donate my funds from A to B, perfect, mm. done. And so I try and do that. Um, sometimes there is a secret. Um, there is a secrecy around it, especially when dealing with the LGBT rights before homosexual relations was legalized. Yeah, because that it was taboo. Were you funding crime in the Indian <laughs> government's view at the time? Um, like if oh, you're putting money towards those causes and they're illegal, uh, <laughs> was there any troubles there? I'm guessing not. Um, I haven't thought of it like that, and I haven't been asked that. That is interesting. But um, that is interesting. I obviously was supporting causes that. Many, uh, the government and many people still in the government viewed as taboo, not right, and illegal, which was homosexual relations. So that's an interesting interpretation. But it's crazy still that, especially in a country like India, where you're going to have a huge, there is a very large LGBT community, again, because of the sheer size of the population, that so many millions of people were being persecuted. Where are you, where are things kind of up to now? in India with all that, as you said, homosexuality has been legalized, as you know, in any country when something's made illegal or illegal, doesn't necessarily kick in with the whole population and when it, you're dealing with one billion people? No, it doesn't because actually homosexual, um, homosexuality and homosexual relations was legalized in India, something which I, alongside many other people, um, campaigned for. In, it was legalized in 2009 and it was made illegal again in 2013. So what's to say that won't happen again? And there are groups who are attacking those rights of, of the LGBT community and they want to see it illegal again. And so it's a matter of education and making sure that the right legislation provide, pre prevails. So it's just a constant battle. It is, it is, but at least we're winning it now. But yeah. it was unprecedented that India, a democracy, and that's the key thing to remember here, India is a democracy, unlike other countries such as China and, and countries in the Middle East. So for a democracy to have legalized homosexual relations and, and then make it illegal again, that was quite um, shocking, actually, especially to the rest of the world. So that makes absolute perfect sense why you've moved into championing that stuff in your galleries. The website, you were kind of giving us a breakdown and that's quite easy. Can you tell us more about that? Absolutely. So on that website, if you go to amarsingallery.com, it has a number of female artists, both living and deceased of great importance. These are great feminist artists. These are great women who were overlooked, who were cast aside because of their gender. And I'm all about championing them, which I think has a link to the women's rights work um, of my grandmother and my ancestors and myself in India. So that's developed into you creating a brick and mortar location. In yes, London. yes. And so I, I then in 2016, I took the lease of a bricks and mortar location in North London in Islington um, and opened Amar Gallery, Amar Singh Gallery uh, it, to do permanent exhibitions. And we have done a number of exhibitions and given artists their first UK shows, given estates, um, which are uh, the families of deceased artists, their first UK shows. And I think really uh, moved, I believe, the conversation forward for women's women artists. What made you pick Islington? Well, I was looking around for something reasonable in terms of size and price in London, and I realized I'm never going to find anything. So the compromise was finding uh, a two, uh, I think it was about 2,000 square foot space in Islington, which had a number of different rooms. But what it had was a lower ground floor, long tunnel, which was perfect for exhibiting works. Sure. And every exhibition I hosted looked different. So sometimes the exhibitions were black and gold. Some uh, were made to look as a green jungle. Um, I was able to really work with the space and I was, I was free from any limitations in that sense. I just wondered if Islington had a sort of, I don't know if I'm using the right term here, but a community of people around it, you know, the, the people with that interest. Well, what's crazy uh, in England um, and I, I hope it changes, is this. A lot of people visit museums, millions, but not a lot of people visit galleries. 
I could take you to the biggest galleries in the world, multi-billion dollar galleries in Mayfair today, and I guarantee you they're not going to be that busy. And Michelle Obama once uh, gave a speech at the opening of the Whitney Museum in New York City, and in her opening remark, she said when she was growing up, she didn't feel welcome in a place like this. And I still unfortunately feel that a lot of those institutions and private galleries are pretentious and, and do make people feel unwelcome. Um, and that's probably why they're quite empty. Whereas in New York, the galleries in, on weekends and museums are rammed, you know, tenfold yeah. compared to uh, London. And that's disappointing. So I always made a point to invite everybody in. It was all about welcoming one of the most pretentious occurrences at an exhibition. And I'll, I'll, I'll give you an example of, of, of an experience I had at a very big gallery. You go to these galleries, you go to the opening night exhibitions, which is really a celebration of the artist and the art, but it's also a celebration, in my opinion, of the people who are coming and investing their time and supporting you and being there and really cherishing this art. They've given up their evenings to um, spend time in your gallery and view what you have to exhibit. So most galleries, I'd say 99% of galleries, what they do is on that night, and they make it a known point to everybody in the room, there's always an exclusive dinner after the mm -hmm. event. So they basically kick everybody out, and they then keep 30 or 40 people and have a private dinner with champagne and wine. Mm -hmm. In some cases I've, I've been to, people are watching themselves get kicked out, while people are setting up the dinner table. I have experienced that. And I decided I'm not going to do those BS dinners. So we never did, um, we never did those uh, gallery dinners. Everyone who came to our exhibitions was, everyone experienced the same thing as one another, as me, as the artists, as my family who were there. But does that mean I didn't take the artists out another day or a day before? Yeah, sure, to celebrate the artists. Um, absolutely, but why, why does it need to be, why do these um, constructs, which are so devi divisive, have to exist? <laughs> I feel, as someone who's not in that world, but has opinions based on maybe what I've seen in movies, TV, right. or heard kind of thing, the view is that it is pretentious, exclusive, and I, if you're experiencing it, as someone who's actually in the world, <laughs> right. It doesn't sound like it's going to change or wants to change. Well, with anything I, I'm involved in, that's not the case. But yeah, you're right. And, and, and that's, I think, a problem with the art world. And art, at the end of the day, is, it should, be, should be for everyone. It really should be for everyone. Um, you know, that's why one of the greatest assets of our human history, literally, are the museums, are the sculptures, are the pyramids, are the, is the Taj Mahal. That is all art. So to, to commodify that and make it this you know, only available for this exclusive club of people, mm -hmm. the top 0.1%, that is utterly pathetic. And I'm not interested in that. Well, so what are your feelings? Because <laughs> I'm sure there's been people like yourself throughout the centuries who love art and who are trying to make it more accessible. Accessible, yes. thank you. Yes, exactly. How does it feel just constantly pushing against the tide, because I imagine, one, it must be exhausting, and two, infuriating. Well, abs absolutely, it is infuriating, and the reality is, it's one of the reasons I've decided to diversify, still remain within the arts, and open a apartment hotel, open a hotel in central London. But so, the gallery has been around for about five years, in some and past. you're developing it into a so gallery, the hotel gallery. is an extension of my gallery, is an extension of all my work in art. Um, there will be exhibitions, there's, there's going to be paintings, design, and now products by female-led companies. So the mission of this hotel, which is an extension of my organization, is again, as it always has been, to champion women and celebrate female leaders. You'll be able to Everything in, in, in a room will be for sale, um, not secondhand. What you do is if you like a chair or you like a product, you go on uh, to our website, uh, which we're developing for the hotel, Curated Soho, 
and you can buy the sleeping masks or the tonic water or um, a dining a dining table at very accessible prices. And, and just to loop back on that point, when I say products by leading women, that's something I, I'm doing not only to celebrate women and these remarkable entrepreneurs who have given me the honor um, of their time in partnership, but to also challenge people to think about these gender balances. So for example, we're gonna have these beautiful silk sleeping masks in every room, founded by um, a travel entrepreneur who's a remarkable lady. We're gonna have uh, shower heads which reduce water and save water, but have vitamin C filters. Those shower heads were founded by, a, by two remarkable female entrepreneurs who started the business from nothing and have grown it um, into quite a large uh, you know, multinational organization. That is the extent I want to push to. And obviously, what I'm describing now is bigger than a gallery. And so I had to diversify. So how did you do that? How do you jump from the art world to apart hotels, especially in London somewhere? It's expensive, it's yes. competitive. Big time. Yeah. Well, it goes back to what I was saying when I failed with the tech companies I, I had started. You have to do what you love, but you have to partner with people who are better than you and know, know more than you. And I've done that. I've, my partners in the project are, are great property entrepreneurs with many, many years um, decades of experience between them. But with that being said, hotels are, it is important um, because these are, these are second homes for people. Art and design is essential. The products you use are essential. And as an art dealer, one of my main jobs was to go to hotels and homes and curate collections for people. And I've been doing that for many years. So in that regard, I do have experience, many years of experience, but I'm not a hotelier. Um, if I was left alone to run it, it would 100% be um, Faulty Towers. Yeah. Uh, I'd be, you know, Basil Singh um, <laughs> rather than Amar Singh. But you partner with great people, which I have done, um, with years of experience and a track record to bring this, this idea to life. Is there, like, is there a wall between what you're doing and they're doing? And I don't mean, obviously, you communicate, but have they been able to pick up some art knowledge from you? Have you managed to pick up some hotel knowledge from them? Or are you focusing on specialism? Ab absolutely. It's been complimentary. I think we've all learned from each other. Yeah. Uh, I, I've certainly learned that a big building site is not something I'm a massive fan of uh, because of the dust pollution. <laughs> um, but, you know, there are masks for that. Sure. Uh, well, you gave an interesting piece of advice earlier that you got about networking. What's the really interesting lesson you've learned from building a hotel. It's funny you mentioned going back to the point I made about networking. So I've, to I've told you about the artists I've met by, by networking, the business partners, you know, billionaires. Uh, my partners in the hotel walked into my gallery some years ago by coincidence. And that's how we met. And this is the value of networking. I think a lot of people, particularly people in their 30s, who might be wanting to change career or might be wanting to challenge themselves, they more than ever are scared of hearing no. No and rejection is, is a scary thing, but what's the worst that can happen, right? At the end of the day, what is the worst that can happen? And when you're talking about your career or, or, or talking about somebody um, who can change your life, you know, I'm not, this, why not just give it a go? Um, of course, there's a way to do it. If someone you recognize who's a leading business person uh, is eating dinner with, with, with friends, obviously do not interrupt their meal, but there is a time and a place, but there's always opportunities out there to seize. I mean, you're absolutely right. It's definitely through the fear of rejection. Everyone hates hearing no. Absolutely. Because, I don't know, we're raised that way yes. to like, just succeed and only get yeses and do this. But also networking over the years, now you spent time in America where it's a huge part of the culture there. Yes. So maybe in the UK or some other countries, networking's a dirty word. If you say you're going to a networking event or it's not the right thing to call something a networking event. You're right. It plays a part. So people absolutely miss out on opportunities. So what would you say to people like, oh, a networking's just, it's fickle, it's this, it's that. I would say you yourself should remove the stigma. And there is a stigma, unfortunately, in the UK. You're absolutely correct. 
that networking is, is looked down upon um, and networking events are dismissed. But also, and I have to stress this, every opportunity can be a networking event in the sense that you can walk into a bar and maybe you're out with friends and you're looking to meet a nice girl or a nice guy. If you are looking for that change in your career, why not also approach those environments like business in the sense that, you know, you can make a human connection, make a friend or make a business contact where it could change your career. That isn't really that part of our culture. One of the interesting things which I'd like to link that sentiment to is the fact that Bumble, this massive female for dating app, has launched Bumble Biz and Bumble BFF. Mm -hmm. So what I'm really saying is those concepts, take it into the real world, go out there and, and, and meet people. The best um, deal I did, I think, in terms of networking and selling a painting was I was flying on a plane to LA and as an art dealer, you fly a lot. I'm not gonna be some Wally who drops 10 grand on a business class flight. Never gonna happen, um, never gonna happen. I am Indian after all, we look for a deal. <laughs> but obviously I fly a lot, so I accumulate the air miles and sometimes there's an opportunity to upgrade mm -hmm. um, for free. So this was one of these opportunities was where I was able to upgrade. And there is a gentleman um, in the bar, uh, business um, class bar of, of this plane. And I start talking to him and he, is involved in film, but it's a massive company. It's a, it's a publicly listed 500 million US dollar company. He ended up spending $300,000 with me by the time he, we landed. Yeah. Because I pulled out my phone, I had images, I had the dimensions. He was asking um, about curating his office. He had been looking for art and he had been looking for somebody who had no BS and could show him market comparisons, not rip him off. That's another big thing I always do when I'm selling art. I say, look, this is what it sells for at auctions. This is what it sells for in the market so that people know that they're um, holding value. Because if people are gonna drop that kind of money, I have a responsibility, so does the artist, to make sure it maintains its value. Yeah, it's all about transparency, Absolutely, right? and there's a lot of, um, there's a major lack of transparency in the art world. Well, you had your own experience with the Frenchman. <laughs> right, so. right. It's interesting because, like you said, the opportunity came from being, you know, in a business class flight and a nice yes. sort of like yes. first class bar. Yeah. And that is where I think a lot of people perceive these deals get made at the fancy private members clubs in the nice places. Now, I agree with what I'm going to imagine your perspective is opportunity is everywhere. It doesn't need to be some multi-millionaire and stuff. No. But people hearing that will be like, oh, he was in the right place at the right time because he had this money. And you've made network connections through smaller things. So just so people can get an idea that it can be done anywhere. Can you give like ideas of like other sort of like opportunities, conversations you've had? Let me, I'll give you another one. Um, part, of, part of what I do, an intricate, intricate part of what I do is events. It's exhibitions, those are events. And I also do charity events. I've done, um, I am the UK ambassador to the Andrea Bocelli Foundation. Um, Andrea Bocelli being the leading opera singer, really arguably in the world. I have done events with him in Italy, in, in London. So I, I, I like to think I'm fairly well versed in events, but I can always learn more. The reason I mention that is I was in an Uber pool a few years ago. Uber pool, see? Try and save money where I can. Um, gotta say, gotta do it, gotta do it. And I was in an Uber pool with my friend and this lady gets into the back of the car and we all start talking. I thought, oh, this is a wonderful um, opportunity to just say, hello, are you having a nice day? Um, what do you do? She was in catering. For years, we worked together on events. That chance encounter catering is, is, is a essential part. The food, the drinks, the running events, yeah. um, especially when you're doing it for charities, you have to raise money for exhibitions, you have to sell art. An Uber pool led to a multi-year long-term business relationship. Um, connections are everywhere. I think people just need to ask others how their day is going and maybe say hello with a smile. <laughs> but yeah. there is a fair, there is a fair, unfortunately, um, particularly in the UK. I feel people are just messing up in opportunities all the time with that now because Absolutely. they're so focused 
on themselves, being insular, not communicating with people, and just missing out. And just, you're right, being on their phones the whole time, um, which they need to break free from. I mean, I'm, I'm very bad at it myself, but it's something I'm trying to get away from as well. So, a lot of interesting things going on now. When's the gallery hotel getting open? Uh, hopefully, in the goal is uh, end of November, so fairly soon, early December. Uh, a lot of pressure is on, um, but I'm very confident we can get it over the line. Um, but but the messaging, you know, I wanna I wanna I wanna go back to this point briefly, which is the messaging is, and it was the same point with my gallery. It's much more important than me. It's much more important, really, than than any single exhibition. The messaging is, you know, championing women. Mm-hmm. How is your time going to be split in the future? Fighting for women's rights in <laughs> India, running sort of the hotel and the gallery. Any other things that your energy and time are focused on? Well, or? well look, again, I really first and foremost view myself as an entrepreneur. Yes, I'm an art dealer. Uh, I, when I introduce myself and people ask what do I do, I say I'm an art dealer. But my goal, whether it happens or not, is to expand the hotels. It would be a beautiful thing, I think, if there were a number of hotels around the world where the art design products are by women, particularly um, women in those territories, which then becomes a shared collective network of, of women being celebrated and being empowered. Um, the messaging there is critical. Now, I know you, so I know the genuineness behind the yes, messaging. Yes. Is there a cynicism behind you know a man pushing for the messaging? I get criticised all the time. I get criticised by men, I get criticised by women. I was at a dinner last year at an art fair and I was sat opposite a lady who said, I don't agree with you, something to this effect. I don't agree with you. I don't agree with your programming championing women. And I get that. Well, what was her reason? Well, shockingly, her reasoning was that the women artists weren't good enough, which is just incorrect. And again, you know, it's, it's not even historically correct. Women, particularly um, uh, women in, in, of the abstract expressions, were written out of history because they were women. Uh, there were, there were committee boards set up, admissions boards to exhibitions, to museums, which were all men. Talk about misogyny. But I also get, oh, you're a man and you're jumping on this Me Too, Time's Up train. And to well, that, it's going to be great so <laughs> people know what you were doing before all that. Yes, and yes, and to, to that point, respectfully, those are, again, causes bigger than, you know, I could ever imagine and needed. But I have literally been doing it years before and also... My grandmother, my ancestors, my great aunt, my mum. My personal history is very rooted in women's rights and and equal rights. Um, Yes, in India, but it translates everywhere. So I think people need to learn a little bit more about me before making some judgments. And again, I will say it. I want it all. Absolutely. But I want to give it all away. I really want to um, stand for something important. And I don't make the rules, but it just, it just so happens that those who can grow successful businesses can impact the world for better or worse. The owner of Coachella is a multi-billionaire who funds anti-gay and anti-LGBT legislation. Right. And he does it very successfully because he has the resources. Similarly, though, there are people out there who grow their businesses as I am trying to do and I am doing, and they will be on your position and fight for equality. You need those resources because of the way the world is built. Activism is essential, being a voice is essential. But for me, I'm not an A-list celebrity. I need to build resources also to make the differences I want to make. Mm -hmm. Yeah, you need money to do good, but you're not waiting until you've made millions to actually do it, which I feel a lot of people who I've spoken to they're like, oh, I want to do good things, but I need to get to this point. Whereas, start as early as possible. Well, it's very, it's very interesting. At, when I was, um, funnily enough, when I met you in 2011, what you just said uh, relates back to a class I, I, I had at Harvard, and I was taught by a professor, John Paul Rowlett, who I think you might have met even. Maybe. In the class, which, which dealt with uh, philosophy and leadership, we are taught about Andrew Carnegie, great, eminent, and Scottish figure. But one of the disappointing facts I learned um, in that class was that Mr. Carnegie didn't actually donate anything during his lifetime. 
And he also was quite ruthless during his lifetime. And I understand it was a different time. It was the 1800s. It was the late, uh, early 20th century where, you know, this immigrant had really was fighting against the odds. But he, he is not the only one. The same thing applies to John Paul Getty, and, uh, and, uh, who, who didn't donate a single penny during his lifetime, the American entrepreneur, and was also quite ruthless with the people he worked with and his own family. Famously didn't even pay the ransom for his son's, his grandson's kidnap. I know that story. Which is crazy. For me, I want to be a living example yeah. um, of, of good deeds. Well, focus on the fact that you made it onto the 30 under 30. Congratulations. <laughs> oh, thank you, thank you. And was it for the charity work? Was it for the promoting women's rights. I think it's I think I think for Forbes 30 under 30 it was a combination of the two and then I had the privilege of going to the Forbes 30 under 30 conference and event in Israel this year my first time in Israel but it was actually a Forbes 30 under 30 women's conference and there were very few men there so I must have been asked 300 times by people who didn't know anything about me. They didn't actually know I had a gallery. They didn't know anything about my background mm -hmm. in women's rights. There's this guy, you know, at all the events. Um, <coughs> and they were asking, are you here just to pick up girls? I, I was asked that and I, I, would, I would explain, I was like, oh no, I'm actually on the Forbes 30 under 30 list this year. And you know, it's a great, um, you know, uh, blessing for me to be here in Israel for the first time. And obviously, if you're on the list, the benefit you get is you don't have to pay for that event. Right. Which is, it's a remarkable event and you meet these incredible people. You've given a lot of actual, your experience with different things. How, you've got a lot going on. And we kind of spoke before we started the podcast about so many people wonder, like, how your life balances out with all the traveling, the setting up the hotel, this and that. From what you know of what society or your friends expect people to do in their 30s, which quite a lot of the time is sit around, have a family, focus down on your job, whether maybe that is your own company or working for other people. How do you find balancing it all? Is there aspects you feel are lacking? Is there things you would change, things you wouldn't? Well, I would like more time to meet people and with the view with the view to maybe having a relationship and starting a family absolutely and that is a sacrifice which um i think a lot of people in business uh, say so i need to find um how to balance my work-life balance my um a, a, bit, a bit better because i think in a relationship obviously you have to be you have to in, invest time with that person and give so much uh, uh, otherwise it's not a fair relationship on from, from both parties but obviously, building a business is a relationship and a child all in one. Yeah. And it's, it's crazy. Uh, just, just I find it balancing that time. Have you found it easier now that you've got, you didn't really have partners from our gallery, but now you've got your two hotel guys. Is it easier kind of sharing everything, like all the issues with them, less lonely? There's a lot more to be done. So yeah, it's, um, it's, a, bit, it's a bit full on. Um, still, but yes, it's good that there are partners um, and and um, there's more of an infrastructure. Unfortunately, a lot of people who are drawn to work in galleries are there for the glam, are there for the champagne exhibitions, yeah. and they don't want to work. And unfortunately, um, you know, we, uh, the gallery had to let a lot of people go because they would just mess around um, and just treat it like um, one big champagne party, which, you know, people always say, you see the glamorous side, you don't see, you know, the kind of uh, back office. <laughs> Some of the other aspects that, from having these conversations, I found people really struggle with balancing the whole friends aspect. And we discussed again before the podcast, like some of the issues you've had, like helping people build their brand, build absolutely, and then someone's thrown money at them, and the relationship has meant nothing. Or also friends questioning what the hell you're doing, starting up a hotel. It goes back to that old contemporary adage: "Hate is gonna hate." <laughs> Unfortunately, uh, in the gallery, I. That's what a gallerist does. It, they build markets for artists, for artworks um, around their entire body of work. And yes, I've had artists living and estates, so um, works by those artists who are deceased, mm -hmm. who I have clearly contributed to, invested l l large amounts of money in, love, time, effort. 
and bigger galleries or other galleries or American galleries have come along and all of a sudden I'm not involved. And that is extremely um, disappointing and hurtful um, because I have a lot to offer. Um, and I think my gallery and my operations stand for something meaningful. And so how do you deal yeah. with it emotionally? Well, em yeah, emotionally. Uh, maybe this is not healthy, but emotionally I have to compartmentalize. I have to. Otherwise, I would just be a wreck uh, and I can't afford to be. Um, and that's the honest answer. I, I, you do, I do comp compartmentalize. Um, but the more hurtful uh, scenario is with friends. Now, I'm blessed. I celebrated my 30th birthday recently and, and, and I had a lot of friends there and I'm blessed to have some very close best friends and, and good friends who are their unwavering loyalty is remarkable really um, and I owe them so much but even in these recent months there have been some other friends maybe not in my inner circle and other people um, who have grilled me about the hotel and by grilled I mean asked me um, you know questioned me fairly aggressively you know, with the intent to catch me up, see if I slip up. And they, you know, such as, what do you know about hotels? That's rude. That's a rude question. Um, um, there's better ways to phrase that, in my mm -hmm. opinion. And the, res the response is, uh, well, I actually know, you know, a little bit, but I'm by no means some um, hotel mogul, but I'm finding people who are better at me and more experienced than me to partner with and mm -hmm. grow. And that's what all entrepreneurs um, who I think ultimately succeed do. Yeah, they probably have to deal with their fair share amount of negativity and questioning from their outer circle and possibly those close to them, people who are maybe worried about them. Absolutely, and, and, and people, it's sad that friends, there are friends out there, we all have them, or people you know who want to see you fail. And unfortunately, I think that is a reason a lot of people do not take those leaps of faith. Mm -hmm. They, it, it puts them off even more from seizing the day. I, I'm being serious. More so than a fear of rejection. They, before the fear of rejection from strangers kicks in, it's the fear of rejection and denigration from people they know. And the truth is, that really shouldn't be limiting. And if it, if it really is if it really is somebody you know hacking away at you, it's hard to say, but they obviously shouldn't be in your life mm -hmm. um, if they can't support, support you, um, whether it's doing well or, or worse, you know. Absolutely, fair. If you could give any other piece of advice to anyone listening who wants to start their own gallery, start their own business or whatever, is there any other lesson you've learned? Not, and it's not something that someone would be able to give you as a soundbite, which is networking and stuff. Is something happened in one of the businesses and you were like, shit, this. Yes. It goes back to the business that was stolen. I employed somebody who had already been rude to me and I had given them um, a pass and I thought maybe we could work together. And I think one of the lessons is who you're partnering with and who you're working with is there's one thing taking the leap and, and facing the rejection and overcoming the rejection. As most people will, somebody will say yes um, to working with you, mentoring you, partnering with you. But then you're dealing with people you work with and people who might be investors who aren't, who don't share the same values or, or, or ideals as you. Mm -hmm. And, and that is important to realize that I've become more cautious and, um, and, and more diligent when interacting, um, with people. And that's, a, I think that's a really important advice I'm giving to myself because, because individuals unfortunately will say often many things for their own betterment. And yes, I'm saying that on, on camera and people will say, so are you saying things for your own betterment? And seriously. And so, so, so what I mean by that is, is in the gallery, for example, people would just lie on their CD. People would say they would, would do X and then nothing would ever materialize. And that, that can destroy a business. 
very quickly. <laughs> so who you're working with and who you're choosing as a co-founder or a mentor or a partner or an employee or an employer, that's really important. One of my best fr friends in, in America, um, he works at a company. It's an extremely large company. He has been promised for a number of years he's getting a promotion. And he's so talented and he's so caring. He, he wants everybody to do so much, so, so better. He doesn't care if someone's a million times more successful financially because all he cares about is the human spirit. And that's why, you know, I love him and so many people love him. But he is so intelligent and he has chosen to work and remain at this company. His boss screams at him daily in front of everybody else, humiliates him. Mm. I'm not mentioning any names, but that is a choice that ultimately is, is with him. And it's a hard choice. And I support whatever choice he wants to make, but of course I counsel him, as any friend does. Yeah. And, you know, years of somebody's life, that's a large percentage. Uh, life is short. So surrounding yourself in terms of employers, employees, colleagues, co-founders, mentors, you've got to have people you trust and who you love and who you care about. Decent people. Uh, Freddie Mercury's father used to famously say, good thoughts, good actions, good deeds. Freddie Mercury was fully Indian. A lot of people don't know that. He was fully Indian as, you know, obviously his parents were. And it's just, it was rooted in that spirituality, uh, which comes from India, which is surround yourself with people you love and care about. I feel that's a good message to yeah. leave people on. Yeah, I hope so. <laughs> Great, Amar, thank you so much. Thank you, thank you, Johnny, thank you. <laughs> And guys, that was it for this episode. I hope you enjoyed it. I hope you got some takeaways. If you liked it, check out Amar's Instagram page. For the Hotel Galleries opening, you can check it out. It's Curated Soho. You can check out the Amar Gallery. And if you liked it, please subscribe. Please leave a review. Please follow us on social media. And there may be a hiatus next week. So we'll be back officially in two weeks. Thanks for listening.